Thanks, David. <clears throat> Let's stay there in uh, Genesis 25 as we pick up our new series. A bunch of times this year, uh, people have preached for me uh, when I've been sick, and today I get to be the fill-in for our brother Adam Condy, who's uh, at home with COVID. Uh, thankful for Adam's work on this passage and uh, for the sermon that he would have preached. But this is what this is the one that you do get. <laughs> so uh, let's jump in. Thankful for Laura's prayer. Um, we are thinking about our eternal family and uh, what that means to belong to the family of God. And we're doing that as we go back to look at some of our family history. I don't know if you're a family history kind of nerd uh, or just someone who's interested in that sort of thing. You don't have to be a nerd. My uncle is a nerd. Actually, he watches on YouTube sometimes. Sorry about that. Um, he was on the show, Who Do You Think You Are, this week. Uh, this was the best screenshot I could get at the fourth attempt of him talking to Liz Ellis. <laughs> He's an archaeologist and a historian uh, up in Lithgow. Done a lot of work on our family history. He wrote a book on my great-grandfather, which you'll see on the screen. Uh, John Hampton Christensen. Someone in the room shares some, some of that name. Uh, one of my kids. Uh, and I don't know if you can read it there, but John Hampton Christensen was a professor of dancing. That's where I get my dancing skills from. <laughs> in my family history. It's fascinating. and You know, origin stories and family history are kind of shaping of our identity, aren't they? Uh, they help to uh, stabilise our story. Uh, they can be ways in which our sense of belonging is strengthened. Uh, family history and origin stories can give us a deeper meaning, kind of deeper roots in life, a clearer purpose maybe. Uh, sometimes knowing who we are and where we came from can motivate us. Uh, help us to see where we need to go. But sometimes we don't want to dig too deep uh, because some of us, if we think about our family history, there's embarrassment, there's disappointment, maybe there's shame, maybe there's hurt and failure. So sometimes our Family history can be really stabilising for our lives, but sometimes it can be really destabilising. Maybe it can throw us all off kilter and out of whack. When you see good families, when you see healthy families... It's a small picture of what God wants for all of us in belonging to his perfect and eternal family. And when we see family go wrong, it's a reminder that God is the redeeming father who can lift us out of our own story, in a sense, and graft us into something that's much bigger and much healthier and much more permanent and meaningful that is his eternal family and his 
eternal story. I spoke uh, with a man on Friday who's 20-something years older than me and uh, in a conversation that lasted maybe four minutes, he instantly went to his family history and his childhood because it's so traumatic that it reaches in and wreaks havoc in his life, even in his 60s, on a daily and almost moment-by-moment basis. And what I wish I had the presence of mind to say to him, and maybe I'll call him this week to have this conversation, is that he has a much bigger family and he has a perfect Heavenly Father and he has a rich and deep and powerful family history in the family, the household of faith that God is building and that God is gathering to himself that does strengthen our belonging and deepen our meaning and clarify our purpose. Uh, These words from the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2, uh, who says that you are a chosen people, that's your identity in Christ. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Or again, Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship, and that's men and women, sons, heirs with Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace. That is our family story, our family identity, by faith in Jesus, adopted into God's eternal family, through adopted to sonship through Jesus Christ, having all the rights and all the privileges that Jesus enjoys in his relationship with his Heavenly Father, the God who made us and who loves us. And all of it is to the praise of his glorious grace. And so what we're doing in coming back to the book of Genesis is we're looking at our family history. We're digging into our origin story as children of Abraham, as we've already said from Hebrews chapter 2. Why did I point over there? That's where my Bible was. Hebrews chapter 2, which is here. Hebrews chapter 2, again, has already reminded us that we are children of Abraham by faith in Jesus. And what's so significant about being the children of Abraham? Why do we want that to be our family history? Our story of origin that we're kind of connected to, not by nature, not by achievement, but by grace. Why is that so significant? Well, that's the next 13 weeks. Glad you're here. That's what we're going to be doing together. Now we're looking at the book of Genesis to dig into that family history and to see what that means, to belong to the God of all faithfulness and to put our hope and trust in him. You'll notice though that we're up to 
the chapter 25 in the book of Genesis. This is our third series in this book. Uh, We've broken it down into four, and we're kind of doing one series a year for four years in the book of Genesis. And it's not arbitrary. We haven't just kind of closed our eyes and picked a spot or just got bored and then moved on to something else. The book of Genesis is highly structured. God knew what he was doing. And he's given something that we can um, see the patterns and the structuring. Uh, You'll see in chapter 25, verse 19, that starts with, this is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Now, in the Hebrew, my Hebrew is pretty dodgy, but this is what I do know. There's a Hebrew word that is toledot, right? Toledot. And the toledots in Genesis, there's 10 of them. And toledot is the word, basically, this is the account of, or these are the generations of. And that happens ten times in the book of Genesis that gives us the structure. Starting all the way back in chapter 2, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Chapter 5, these are the generations of Adam. Last year we looked at chapters 12 to 25, these are the generations of Terah, Abraham's family line. And now we look to chapter 25, verse 19, these are the generations of, or this is the account of, the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. And just as when we looked last year at Terah, what's the focus? It's Terah's son, Abraham. So in this series, when we're looking at the line of Isaac, the focus is on Isaac's son, Jacob. And that's going to be the focus of the next uh, 13 weeks as we head towards chapter 36. And that's where we'll leave off when we read once again, this is... These are the generations of uh, Isaac's son Esau, right? So that's what we're going to to do over the next 13 weeks. And the focus of this account, all of Genesis and really all of the Bible, is how the God of all faithfulness keeps his promises to Abraham. Remember, back in chapter 12, God gave that promise that he would give Abraham land and offspring and a blessing. He would give him a place, he'd give him a people, and he would bless him, and not just bless him, but through him, the blessing, the kindness of God would go to all people of all nations. This is how God would restore the world. The world that he loves the world that he made, the world that is broken and divided because of sin and alienated because of human rebellion, this is how God is going to bring it all back together under the kingship of Jesus. He says he's not going to do it just by clicking his fingers. He's not going to do it just by starting again. He's going to do it in history through people, through a family and a nation. And so we need to be in it with him for the long haul. And lots of that long haul we have in the book of Genesis. And this is our family history, Galatians 3. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's child and you are the heir of his promises. That's what the Bible says. If you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's child and you're heir of those promises to receive the blessing uh, that God gives And the place 
that God gives and belong to the people that God is gathering his eternal family. And one of the great things about being in this family is that it's not determined by nature. It's not determined by your blood, your DNA. And it's not determined by tradition. And it's not determined by your personality or your performance. It's determined by God's grace as God faithfully keeps his promises and sovereignly chooses those who would belong to him, his household of faith. So that's what we're going to see in chapter 25 as we start this series. That God's family line runs through his promises, that it relies on his gracious gracious choice, despite all the mess and sin, and it is a treasured possession that's not to be despised. God's household of faith, his family line, it runs through his promises. Verse 19, look there again. Verse 19, this is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Remember, he was the long-awaited child of promise who was born when Abraham was like 100 years old, waiting for God to keep his promise and the one that God took up on the mountain and said to Abraham, you should sacrifice him, the one and only child of promise. Right? That son, Isaac, whom God spared and provided the ram in the thicket. That son, Isaac, this is his family line. Abraham became the father of Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. That was that really long chapter that Ben read for us a couple of weeks ago in chapter 24 of Genesis. He was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Right? We're reminded at the very beginning of God keeping his promises to Abraham by providing Isaac. And then through Isaac, we are looking for another seed as we look for this family to keep expanding. And Isaac has married Rebekah. And we're reminded of Rebekah standing at the well and carrying ridiculous amounts of water to feed the camels and her showing initiative and strength and her being beautiful and strong. And that she was eager to belong to this family. And that this is the path through which God would keep his promises. This is the family line. And as we keep looking for God to keep these promises through this family line, at every point along the way, in every generation, it seems from a human perspective, there are insurmountable obstacles that keep pointing us back to the fact that this is God's work This is God's will. This is God's purposes that he is working out and he is doing it despite nature and he is doing it despite tradition and it's not because of anything these people can do but solely because of his purposes of grace and his sovereign rule and care. At every point along the way, There are human obstacles or human sin or human failure that keeps turning our attention away from the achievement, the personality, the abilities of these people to the faithfulness of God as he keeps his promises. And so that God's purposes moving 
forward in the world, don't rely on human achievement or performance, but always relies on God's gracious choice and his sovereign intervention. Pick it up at verse 21, where Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. We're reminded again that this is exactly what happened to his father Abraham and his mother Sarah, that they were childless. But thankfully, Isaac maybe has learnt from family history and instead of trying to take things into his own hands, he comes before God in prayer. And God graciously answers his prayer, but maybe in a way that just complicates things. The Lord answers his prayer and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. Promise kept. Verse 22, the babies jostled each other. Uh-oh. We're looking for a child of promise. We haven't encountered this before. What happens when there's twins? Which line will the family continue through? And she said, why is this happening to me? I have a feeling that this verse is quite an understatement. That the baby's jostling inside her is more than just a bit of indigestion. That this is a troubled pregnancy. That there is a lot happening between these two babies in the womb. Uh, We have twins and their birth was extraordinary. When Estella, our first twin, was born and I was holding her, very surreal, holding one baby, waiting for another one to arrive. As soon as Estella was born, Phoebe went, oh my goodness, look at all this room. All this real estate, had her own room for the first time ever. She's never had her own room since. (laughs) And she spread out and she did a backflip and the obstetrician swore and and Sarah looked pained, right? It's complicated. But something bigger is happening in the jostling of these twins. So again... Smart move, she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord answered her. Now in the Old Testament narrative, when God himself shows up and speaks, that's important and we need to listen. What does he say? Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. God, his answer to this prayer, his explanation of what's happening, just complicates matters even more. Because he talks about the fact that this jostling will not end when uh, Rebecca gives birth to Jacob and Esau. That their jostling that started in the womb will continue for generations and for generations and for generations. And here we have the story, the origin story of the nation of Israel's enmity with the nation of Edom, related by nature, but at conflict with one another through the generations. And when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, 
maybe his skin, maybe his hair. His whole body was like a hairy garment. They named him Esau. And after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, and so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. It's 20 years after they were married. And here, the promise of children and the family line of promise that will continue has been fulfilled, but with the complexity of twins and which, which one would be the child of promise. By nature, the child of promise ought to be Esau, the firstborn. He's the one, as the firstborn, who should carry on the family, family name. He is the one, by nature and by tradition, who gets a double inheritance, right? So if there's two of them, one, the eldest, gets double what the younger one gets. If there's 12 of them, you break the inheritance down into 13 parts and the eldest gets two, right? Twice as much as anyone else. By nature, Esau ought to be the one through whom the family line continues and the child of promise. But what has God said? God said, one people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. So many times throughout the history of the Bible, God takes nature and tradition and ditches it in order to keep shifting our eyes from nature and tradition to grace and sovereignty so that we can see it's him who's in charge and it's his grace that counts for everything, not what should be ours by nature, tradition, performance or achievement. And so it was Abel over Cain. And so it was Isaac over Ishmael. Later on it will be Perez who pushes aside Zerah to become the firstborn. And who... Would Perez then be the father of? He would form the royal line of King David. Time and time and time again, the Bible wants to say, it's not nature. It's not tradition. It's God's sovereignty and his grace. So what does the rest of the Bible think of this episode where Esau is kind of set aside... The older will then serve the younger, that it would be through Jacob that God's line of promise would continue. Well, have a look on the screen at how the Apostle Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 9. He says, not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purposes in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? 
No, not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Uh, It sounds like a really harsh word, doesn't it, when God says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. I think it's a, a, a matter of comparison. It's like when Jesus says you need to hate your mother and father and love him. Uh, it's, a, it's looking at the comparison of value and God is saying that it is through Jacob that his promises will continue, even though in the end God gives promises to Esau as well. But the big point is that God is wanting to say it is about his sovereign grace and his choice so that it doesn't depend on human desire or effort but on God's mercy. See, the thing is, if our position in God's family just depends on nature then it would be the firstborn, it would be the biggest, it would be the strongest, it would be the best families. They would be the ones that have the privileged position. If it depended on human effort, it's just then the strongest as well, isn't it? Or the most morally upright. And you end up in this position where people can uh, pride themselves or boast in who they are and what they've done. And so the centre of who who belongs to God's family is what I can do and who I am and what I have instead of who God is and what he has done and what he gives. And so it's a wonderful picture that all of us stand on the same footing, reliant on God's sovereign grace and his choice rather than our achievement or our position. It doesn't depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. We often see this picture of divine election and choice as a puzzle to be worked out or something to be angered by or a reason to stand at a distance from God. But the Bible always presents it as a doctrine of great comfort and assurance that you don't have to reach a certain standard, you don't have to be from a certain family, you don't have to reach a certain level or achieve a certain thing. You need to reach out your empty hands and receive the gift of God's grace. And that's wonderful because it means that his purposes keep moving even despite the mess and the sin. Have a look at verse 27 and 28. So one of the things with family history is that sometimes the skeletons in the closet, the mess and the sin, the disappointment and the shame can make us embarrassed or we want to skip over it or we want to leave it out. The Bible doesn't do that. It's warts and all which means that you and I belong with our mess and our sin. We're right at home in this family line. The complexity and the competition 
that was prophesied and promised by God is simply intensified by the nurture of this family situation. Have a look at verse 27. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, one the stronger one, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Isn't that a remarkable insight into favouritism and competition in a family? It's never a good look. Even when it's just perceived that there's favouritism amongst the parents and the children. What existed uh, in the promises of God by nature is intensified and cemented by nurture as Isaac and Rebecca end up driving these two brothers further apart and intensifying the competition that they have with one another. And that leads to, to Esau giving away his birthright because of Jacob's deception. Have a look at verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why he was also called Edom. A little foreshadowing. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. That's the birthright of getting the double inheritance. That's the birthright of carrying on the family name, of belonging to this family of promise. I am about to die, Esau said. Not really. As in, I'm exhausted and hungry. It's like what kids say, I'm about to die of hunger. That's very rarely true. I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. It's a remarkable thing that we're told about the moral kind of virtue of Esau's actions. He despised his birthright. But... As we looked at this in our growth group on Wednesday night, we were trying to work out who's the hero of the story. Like, you kind of feel like if Jacob's going to be the child of promise and the one through whom God's purposes are going to be fulfilled, that he's meant to be the hero of the story and we're meant to identify with him. But he seems like a real piece of work. Like a total scumbag kind of. And I don't really want to identify with him. But I don't really want to identify with Esau. So what are you supposed to do? Well, again, who's the hero? It's the God of all faithfulness. He's going to achieve his promises through the line of Jacob, not because of Jacob's moral virtue, but simply because of God's mercy and grace. And the lesson the rest of the Bible tells us we're meant to learn from this episode is that Esau despised his birthright, that while God had chosen Jacob, Esau confirmed that choice in the way that he held fast and loose to belonging to God's family of promise. 
that it wasn't worth anything to him. I don't want to be part of this family anyway. When he sells his birthright to Jacob for some lentil stew, he doesn't even care. He ate and drank and got up and left. Didn't even think twice about it. He gave away his inheritance. He gave away his position in the family as if it meant nothing to him. And the reason it meant nothing to him is that because he was so driven and so attached to and so defined by the appetites of his body and the things of this world. And so Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, do not be like Esau and let the appetites of your body and the things of this world make you play fast and loose with what is of eternal value the treasured possession of belonging to God's household, the family of faith, and the eternal inheritance that God promises to those who would belong to him. Don't exchange the blessing of being in God's family for the appetites of your body and the things of this world. This whole episode keeps reminding us of the God of all faithfulness who achieves his purposes by his grace for his glory and he will continue to build his family of faith despite mess and sin, not because of people's moral virtue, not because of nature or tradition, not because of their personality or performance, but simply by grace that he might be seen as the great father and saviour of his people and that through our big brother, the Lord Jesus, we might belong to him forever. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And whether you think that your family history is great and worth clinging to, or whether you think of yourself and your family with shame and embarrassment, here is something of eternal value. That in love, God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will and to the praise of his glorious grace, which, 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 <clears throat> nearly, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the great blessing and privilege that comes by grace of belonging to your family of faith. We ask that as we reflect on this family history that we've been grafted into, that we would know that we belong to the God of all faithfulness, in whom every promise is fulfilled in Jesus, and that because of our big brother Jesus, we can know for sure, 
that our birthright is secure, that we are heirs through faith of all things in the perfection of your eternal kingdom. Please keep lifting our eyes from our own performance or our own personality to your grace and mercy and all that we have in Jesus. We ask this for his sake. Amen.